Those of you who are visiting can see by the cover of your, of your program that we're in a series entitled The Sex God. What a day to visit, huh? To be precise, we're in the sixth week of this series. Now, for those of you who have young children, I want you to know that my comments this morning would be considered by many to be inappropriate for young children. So if that concerns you, this might be the time to exit and take your children to our outstanding City Kids Ministry, led by our outstanding Director of Children's Ministry, Jeanette Allen. This would be a good time for that. In the first three weeks of this series... We saw that the Bible has a great deal to say about sex. We saw that God created sex. We saw that God called it very good, that he commands married couples to have sex for their pleasure, and that the sexual relationship in marriage is designed to point us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the last two weeks, we've looked at what Jesus said about lust in his sermon on the mount, that when sex becomes an obsession in a culture... It dehumanizes people, and it brings enormous suffering and destruction into people's lives. Okay, so that's where we've been so far in this series. Today, and in the next few weeks to come, I'm going to be speaking about some of the most volatile and controversial issues in America, both inside and outside the church. I'm going to be talking about things like homosexuality, gay marriage, transgenderism, and more. When I began this series a number of weeks ago, I asked you guys for a lot of grace uh, and a lot of uh, leeway. And you guys have demonstrated that to me beautifully. I think that says a lot, frankly, about who you are, about who our church is. Because I think many of the things that I've said over the last number of weeks would have been censored by other churches. But you guys have given me much grace and much leeway. I think it's very possible that I'm going to really need that the most in the weeks to come as we talk about some of these subjects. Some of you have been, uh, may have been aware that Wednesday of this past week was National Coming Out Day, an annual LGBTQ Awareness Day. A young man by the name of Cody posted on social media that a year ago today I was still in the closet, but today I'm out and free. I've never been happier since I came out. Someone named Jess wrote, excuse me, this year I came out to my friends and family and it's the best decision I've ever made. Representative Emanuel Cleaver from Missouri's 5th District wrote, the courage to come out is something to be celebrated. That's why I stand with the LGBT community on hashtag National Coming Out Day. And then finally, another young woman by the name of Nadine wrote, You don't have to be LGBTQ to support equality for all. You just have to be a decent human being. Well, today and and next week, I want to talk about homosexuality specifically. We'll talk about some of the other issues in the weeks to come. But I want to talk about homosexuality specifically today and next week. So I guess you could say this is part one of a two-part Sermon series that's part of a larger sermon series. That's complicated. Let's just say that this week I'm talking about homosexuality and next week I'm talking about homosexuality. What are we to make of it? What are we to make of homosexuality? Is it a legitimate form of sexual expression? Or is it a distortion of what God intended sex to be about? What are we to make of it? Before we launch into a search of what the Bible says about this, I want us to keep in mind 
that this isn't just some abstract conversation about a controversial political and theological issue. Now, this is, this is about people. It's about human lives, human stories. When we talk about this, we're talking about someone's dad or mom or son or daughter. We're talking about in-laws. We're talking about best friends. We're talking about lovers, even spouses these days. I'm talking about my own friend whose name I'm going to call Cheryl, not because any of you would necessarily know her, but some of the people listening to our podcast might. Cheryl is a lesbian and one of the funniest and most kind-hearted people I know. She was sexually abused by one man after another all through her childhood. This is about my wife's friend Greg, a conservative Republican transvestite whose brother is a pastor and whom Amy has known for years and whose friendship she enjoys very much. This is about a young woman that I met a few years ago here in Evansville, a compassionate and gentle soul who's in a lesbian relationship after being abused as a child, after being beaten by a husband, and whose Christian parents refused to ever speak to her or her children again after she told them she was gay. This is about some of you. And how you have made very difficult decisions in your life in the best way that you knew how. Trying to reconcile what you felt internally with what you saw around you. And in coming out, some of you suffered the loss of some of your closest relationships. And this is about some of you who have never come out. Who struggle internally with same-sex attraction but you feel too guilty, too ashamed, too frightened to talk about it with anyone, let alone anyone in the church. What I'm saying in all of this is that this isn't just an abstract theological discussion detached from human lives. No, this is a a deeply personal issue that we're talking about this morning and next week. And that's part of what makes this such a volatile issue to speak on. I think what also makes all LGBTQ issues so difficult to speak on is how polarized any conversation about homosexuality has become. You are either a hateful homophobe if you don't agree with the LGBT community, or you are a godless, immoral heretic in some corners of the Christian community if you do. Fortunately, pastors like me are paid multi-million dollar salaries to wade into such treacherous waters, which helps reduce some of the burden on us. You guys know I'm kidding, right, about the multi-million dollar salaries because we don't get paid multi. I don't, at least. Now, I'm going to do something this morning that if you're a regular here, you know that I generally don't like to do. Rather than taking to you to one particular passage of Scripture, that's really, that's really what I like to do. This morning, I'm going to start this discussion about homosexuality by looking at a number of different passages this morning. this morning. I don't normally like to do that. Because it's very easy to yank verses out of their context and read into them things that they really don't mean. But there are times that you have to study the Bible this way, systematically. In other words, you have to look at all of the places that the Bible speaks to an issue in order to understand what it has to say about that particular issue. 
Now again, we're going to talk about homosexuality this week and next week. But as we start this discussion this week, I think it's important for us to go back and ask a fundamental question that you might think is an obvious one to people in a church. And here's the question. Do right and wrong really exist? Do right and wrong really exist? There was a time in American history in which a vast majority of people would have answered with a resounding yes. Even people who weren't particularly interested in Christianity would have said that yes, there are rights and wrongs. Those really exist. Today though, many people, and surprisingly many people inside a church like this one, think of right and wrong not as matters of fact, but as matters of taste. For example, there isn't any objective fact that broccoli tastes good. It tastes good to some people who have no taste buds. And it tastes very bad to others like me who have highly developed taste buds. But there is no objective right or wrong about how broccoli tastes. Now people think it's the same with moral values. Something may seem wrong to you, but it's right to me. There isn't any any real right or wrong, they would say. It's just a matter of opinion. But I want you to understand that every major religion in the world argues that, yes, there is such a thing as right and wrong. And specifically, Christianity says that right and wrong issue from the nature and the character of God as he has expressed it in the Bible. So, for instance... Genesis chapter 1 1 tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. Exodus 20 tells us that as the creator, he gave Israel the Ten Commandments. And a generation later, the book of Joshua tells us only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways and keep his commandments. And hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And of course the Bible repeats this assertion of our moral obligation to God many times over and over throughout the scriptures. So, right and wrong do exist. They're an expression of God's character, not human opinion. They've been expressed in the Bible. And we have an obligation to keep those commands. And if we don't... Understand that we're guilty regardless of how we may feel about those commands. So, imagine for the moment. Imagine for the uh, the moment that the Nazis had won World War II. And let's imagine that that, that they had succeeded in brainwashing or exterminating everyone who disagreed with them. So that everybody would think that the Holocaust had been good and right. it still would have been wrong. Even if everybody thought it was good and right, it still would have been wrong because God says that the murder of innocent people is wrong regardless of human opinion. Now some of you are thinking to yourselves, well that's the religious point of view, but that's not the secular point of view. I want you to listen to this. It's from Richard Taylor, who was a, a prominent American philosopher until his death in 2003. And by the way, he was not... A Christian. He was secular. This is, a, this is a little lengthy, but it's worth the effort. He says this. He says, our moral obligations 
can be understood as those that are imposed by God. But what if this higher-than-human lawgiver is no longer taken into account? Does the concept of moral obligation still make sense? He says, no. The concept of moral obligation is unintelligible apart from the idea of God. The words remain, but their meaning is gone. He goes on. He says, the modern age, more or less repudiating the idea of a divine lawgiver, has nevertheless tried to retain the ideas of moral right and wrong without noticing that in casting God aside, they have also abolished the meaningfulness of right and wrong as well. Thus, people sometimes declare that such things as war or abortion or the violation of certain human rights are morally wrong, and they imagine that they've said something true and meaningful However, questions such as these have never been answered outside of religion. What's he saying? Well, he's saying that if you want to assert, for example, that homosexuality is right, you have to have a God in order for right and wrong to exist. You guys remember the young lady at the beginning of this? I quoted her from social media. Uh, She said, you don't have to be LGBTQ to support equality for all. You just have to be a decent human being. Well, understand that you have to have a God to make such an assertion. Because being a decent human being is being right. That's a moral trait. You have to have a God to make such an assertion. And likewise, if you want to say homosexuality is wrong... You have to have a God to do so as well. And I should add, you have to have a God who has expressed right and wrong in some objective way that we can all see. Now, I don't have time this morning to defend why the Bible is the objective standard of right and wrong as opposed to all other religious documents. I would refer to you refer you to any number of books that you could find on Amazon to explain that or even previous series that I've done here on that subject. But the point is that right and wrong do exist, and the Christian view is that right and wrong exist in the Bible. Now, if that's true, that right and wrong do exist, and if it's true that right and wrong is expressed in the Bible, then we need to understand what the Bible says about LGBTQ issues. And specifically, let's ask this question. Does the Bible forbid homosexuality. Does the Bible forbid homosexuality? Now notice, we're not asking what does the culture teach about homosexuality? Or what is your favorite actor or actress or movie or TV show or politician or intellectual elite or anyone else says about homosexuality? We're not asking even what some pastor says about homosexuality or even what I say or think about homosexuality. We're not even asking what you or your homosexual friend says about it. Why? Why aren't we asking those things? Because right and wrong aren't a function of human opinion. Right and wrong come from the character of God and are revealed in the Bible. So here's the question again. Does the Bible forbid homosexuality? And the answer is no, it doesn't. How many of you are getting ready to go pack my office up before the service is even over right now? 
You cannot find a single Bible verse that forbids homosexuality. There isn't one. Now, why do I say that? Well, homosexuality refers to a state or an orientation. The idea of a person being a homosexual by nature, by orientation, is a feature of modern psychology that would have been unknown to people in the ancient world. And so it absolutely, so the Bible absolutely does not speak to the issue of homosexuality, a state of being by orientation. It just does not talk about that. But here's another question that we need to ask. Does the Bible forbid homosexual behavior? And the answer to that question is yes, it does. Very directly, in six different places, and indirectly in a, in a multitude of others. Here are, the, here are the places that it speaks to homosexual, uh, excuse me, homosexual behavior directly. Leviticus 18.22. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. It is detestable. Leviticus 20. If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. Then in Genesis chapter 19, you get this story of a, the men of a place called Sodom from which we get our word sodomy, who attempt to gang rape a group of men. Genesis 19 says that then the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So some of you would say, well, that's the Old Testament. Well, the New Testament also speaks very directly and very clearly to this issue as well. For, in, for instance, 1 Corinthians 6. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Timothy chapter 1, speaking about sound doctrine, the sound doctrine of the gospel says that for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. Romans chapter 1. We'll look at this passage more next week. But it says, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now I want you to notice that not a one of these verses speaks to homosexuality. But all six of these speak directly to homosexual behavior. Now, why do I distinguish between homosexuality and homosexual behavior? Am I just trying to be cute? Is this just for shock value? Not at all. 
This is part of the nuanced approach that the Bible takes to this issue. You see, there there are some defenders of homosexual behavior, many of you know this, who are very anxious to prove that your genes, not your upbringing, but your genes, determine whether or not you are a homosexual. Because then, in their minds, that would mean that homosexual behavior is normal and right because they would say it's a part of one's basic identity. But I want to suggest to you that that doesn't follow at all. That logic doesn't follow. Just because you're genetically predisposed to some behavior doesn't mean that that behavior is morally right. Or even that it's a part of your identity. For example, some researchers suspect that there may be a gene which predisposes some people to alcoholism. Does that make alcoholic their identity? Is that like the sum total of what they are? Or are they more than that? And is that, does that mean that it's all right for someone with such a predisposition to go ahead and drink to his heart's content? Obviously not. The question of whether or not you're born gay or whether it came from your upbringing really doesn't matter in the end. The important thing is not how you got your orientation, but what you do with your orientation. This is very important. It's a very important nuance. Think about it. On the one hand, there are some people who have a homosexual orientation who choose not to act out on it. Did you know that? Did you know there are some people who feel strongly that they have a homosexual orientation, but they have chosen to follow Christ instead of to act out upon it? Did you know that's possible? And did you know it's possible that some of them even say that they're very happy people. Do you know that? What relief it would be to a person like that, who feels that, that their homosexual impulses make them inherently bad or shameful. What relief it would be to know that the Bible doesn't say that they are wrong at the core of their being. That is, it is perfectly possible to be a homosexual and to be a spirit-filled, born-again Christian because it's homosexual behavior that the Bible forbids. And so just as an alcoholic who is dry can stand up in an AA meeting and say, I'm an alcoholic, so, so a homosexual who is living straight and keeping himself pure ought to be able to stand up in a church, in a prayer meeting, in a Bible study, wherever, and say, I'm a homosexual. But by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, I am living chastely for Christ. On the other hand, let's make the point that there are some people who claim no homosexual orientation, but who do engage in homosexual acts. And see, those homosexual acts are just as wrong. Here's the thing. You see, we don't fully understand the roles of heredity and environment in producing homosexuality. God knows. We don't. Perhaps someday we will, but that doesn't really matter. Even if homosexuality were completely genetic, the Bible's teaching on this subject is that genetics doesn't make it right. Now look, I know that this is, a, this is a terribly unpopular view of homosexual behavior. It doesn't seem progressive. 
And it's a death blow to the idea that individuals should be able to express themselves in any way they want to. And because of that, as you might imagine, there are people, usually liberal scholars, liberal Bible scholars, who have tried to get out from under the Bible's teaching about homosexual behavior. And so I want to give you three lines of attack that they normally take. Here's the first one. What they will normally say is that the New Testament is only condemning the pagan practice of men sexually exploiting young boys. In other words, male pedophilia. That's what they're saying. They're saying that that's all that the Bible is speaking to when it speaks about homosexuality. Well, let's look at, see if that's true. Let's go back to Romans 1, the passage that we read just a little while ago. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other, what does it say? Men. Okay, and the word for man, the Greek word for man, the Greek word for child, very different words. Okay. The second line of attack that many people take is that the New Testament is only condemning heterosexuals who engage in homosexual acts, not homosexuals who engage in homosexual acts. But remember what we just talked about. It's not orientation that matters. It's the act that matters. So whether you're a homosexual doing homosexual acts, or heterosexual doing homosexual acts. Homosexual behavior is what's wrong, not the issue of your orientation. Right? And then there's a third line of argument. I think probably many of you have heard this one. That Jesus never forbade homosexuality. Some people say that. Jesus never talked about it. If Jesus didn't forbid it, then why, would, why should we forbid it? Well, here's the thing. Jesus didn't forbid homosexuality directly. But there are a lot of other things that are wrong that Jesus didn't forbid directly either. Like torture. He didn't forbid torture. He also didn't forbid human trafficking directly. But he did affirm everything taught in the Old Testament that we read earlier. Watch this. He says in Matthew chapter 5. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law. That's where we got our passages in the Old Testament from, the law, about homosexuality. It says they won't disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And so Jesus is endorsing the passages from the Old Testament that speak to homosexual behavior and that say that homosexual behavior is wrong. So, what I want you to see is that as it relates to homosexual behavior, the Bible does indeed speak to the issue very clearly, and not only that, but it very clearly forbids it. Okay? Now, I want to finish this conversation about homosexuality and homosexual behavior next week. But here's what I want to do for just a moment. I want to ask you, what do you do with the Bible's teaching on homosexual behavior? And first, I, I, 
I especially ask this of those of you, I'm going to use an arbitrary number, who are 40 and under, who are Christians and who claim no homosexual orientation, but you feel very sympathetic to the idea that homosexual behavior is okay, that it's right, and that it's good. All right? The Bible's teaching puts you in a very unpopular position in your peer group. To many people, this makes you a homophobe. To many people, this makes you immoral. If you believe in this, if you follow Christ and believe what he says about this, then it makes you immoral, they would say. To many people, it makes you hateful. To many people, this makes you clearly stupid and intolerant and not progressive. Some people will defriend you. Some people won't hire you. Some people will flat out hate you. And that's hard, isn't it? <laughs> it absolutely is. I mean, especially for those of you who are longer, uh, younger, a great percentage of your life has been about not standing out in an uncool way. You want to fit in, right? But we know that there were people who hated Jesus. And he himself told us that if they hated him, they will hate those who follow him. And he once told his disciples, he said this, Mark chapter 8, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Like deny their desire for popularity. For widespread acceptance. To be known as cool, to be known as progressive, to be known as smart, to be known as tolerant. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. There was a time in America where Christianity was the majority school of thought. Today, I want you to understand, especially those of you who are younger, I want you to understand that you are part of a minority. And in the years to come, you will be increasingly persecuted for your faith in Christ and the Bible's teaching about homosexual behavior. And so what that means is that you have to make a decision about whether you think your favorite actors, politicians, columnists, intellectuals, whoever you follow, you have to make a decision about whether they're right on this issue or whether Jesus is right on this issue, which is really, if you think about it, a question of intellect. Who's smarter? Jesus, the one who knew how to change the molecular structure of water into wine? Or your favorite actor or actress, politician, columnist, or intellectual elite? Which one is smarter? You've got to make a decision. Following Christ in this culture isn't going to be the most popular thing to do. And you will be persecuted for it. What's most important to you? Being popular or following Christ? You're going to have to make a decision about that. I want to speak to those of you here today too who struggle with same-sex attraction. Some of you 
have acted out upon that attraction and you wonder if God could ever love you. And then there are some of you who don't. I want to talk also to those of you who don't struggle with same-sex attraction but who believe that homosexual sin is somehow worse than other sins, than your sins. I want to take us back to a passage that we read just a moment ago from 1 Corinthians 6. I want you to read this. I think this is very important that you see this. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, let me just stop there for a moment because what I want you to see is that God doesn't distinguish between homosexual sin, heterosexual adultery, greed, drunkenness, gossip, or people who swindle money from other people. They're all equal in that God, in the person of Jesus Christ, in his great mercy and compassion, willingly died on a cross for all of our sins and had to die on a cross for all of our sins. On the cross, Jesus died out of undying love for homosexuals so that they wouldn't have to pay the penalty for their sins. But I also want you to notice in the next to last phrase of that passage, go back and you'll see it. It says there in this, there's this little line and it says, notice what it says. And that is what some of you were. Do you get the significance of that? The Apostle Paul writes this passage to a church in Corinth. What he's saying is that there are people at this church in Corinth who were homosexual in their orientation, who had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and whom the Lord Jesus Christ had made part of his church. Don't walk out of this room today thinking that God hates homosexuals or that somehow he sees homosexual sin as worse than anyone else's sin. If you struggle with same-sex attraction this morning, welcome to the fellowship of, the bro- of broken people, the local church. We're glad that you're here with us. And the fact that a broken person like you can be here means that a broken person like me can be here too. Yep. God doesn't distinguish between homosexual sin and heterosexual adultery or any other sin. Christ had to die for each and every one of our sins. So no one here is better than anyone else. But everyone here is broken in some way. And God in his great mercy in the person of Jesus Christ died for broken people like you and a broken, very broken person like me. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? No matter how old you get, it is still, Lord, it seems like it's just very difficult to be on the wrong side of a majority of people. Lord, when we try to reconcile what the scriptures say with what our culture says, it's very, very hard to come to that place. Lord, I pray for those this morning who are followers of Jesus Christ here in the room. I pray that you would give them courage to make a decision on the basis of what the Bible says, not what the culture says about homosexual behavior. Lord, for those who are here today that struggle with same-sex attraction, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to their hearts today. 
Would you encourage them, Lord, that you love them? And that it's not their same-sex attraction that you forbid, but it's the behavior. And that it's very possible for them, Lord. Difficult, no question, but very possible to not have to act out on that behavior. Lord, would you encourage them that they're more than just that, that that's not their total identity? Would you encourage them about that, Lord? And for every person that's here today, Lord, would you encourage them that you love them, that you died on the cross for their sins, and that there is no sin better or worse than anyone else, than any other? But thank you that you bring broken people like me into your church and allow me to be a part of it. I thank you for your grace. Lord, we worship you. We affirm you today as the most intelligent person who has ever lived on the face of the earth. That your intelligence exceeds everyone's. In fact, it exceeds the accumulation of all of the intelligence and knowledge in all of human history. So we affirm that, Lord, and we trust in you. Lord, thank you for the truth of Scripture. Thank you that it finds a way to speak with very clear truth, but also with grace as well. And let us be a congregation of people who live by truth and who also live by grace. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray today.